0: Hola Chris, this is Elma from Ireland and I'm currently walking the Camino on my way to Los
1: Arcos and it is absolutely fabulous out and I said sure why not give Chris a shout see what the crack is
0: I'm having a great time Uh, loving the podcast, keep me entertained Um, cool, talk to you again, bye
1: for that beautiful message from the Camino Santiago in España Uh, yeah if you don't know about that that's an old pilgrimage trail that uh, pilgrims trod for centuries all across uh, France northern Spain it's on the way to uh, Santiago de Compostela I believe is the sort of final destination I have a buddy who rode a bike from Amsterdam along the Camino so pilgrims came from northern europe as well it reminded me i found an old journal the uh, journal that i kept when i was traveling back in the ooh, i think i started in the early 80s yeah i'm looking here 1990 uh, about the time i got to barcelona in any case when i was listening to elma thinking about spain i was reminded of uh A book, uh, I think it was Journey to Islan by Carlos Castaneda that I had read around that time. And I pulled out this journal and I found some lines that I wrote down. All paths are the same. They lead nowhere. Think about that. Yeah, we all die, right? So whatever path you're on, it's going to the same place. As Carsey Blanton tells us every damn time we listen to that song. Uh, Both paths lead nowhere, but one has a heart. The other doesn't. One makes for a joyful journey. As long as you follow it, you're one with it. The other will make you curse your life. One makes you strong, the other weakens you. So that's the case, right? There, are all paths lead to the same place, but some are paths of joy and beauty and sincerity and truth, and other are paths of deception and weakness and ultimately... Sadness and destruction. And, and, you know, there's a big difference between the sadness of tragedy and loss and the sadness of knowing that your lack of courage or decency provoked that tragedy and loss. It's, but they're both sadness, but they have a different texture and a different taste. Um, there's there's another line in there. Uh, Para mí, solo recorrer los caminos que tienen corazón, cualquier camino que tenga corazón. Por ahí lo recorro, y lo única prueba que vale es atravesar todo su largo. Y por ahí yo recorro mirando, mirando, sin aliento. That's my shitty Spanish accent. And basically, it's sort of in the same same vein. It says, for me, uh, I only um, travel those paths that have heart. Any path with heart, and there is where I travel or where I, I, I recorro, where I go. Um, and the only challenge that matters is to go its t- entire length. And that's where I walk, looking, looking breathlessly. Yeah, it's a pretty beautiful book, Journey to It's I haven't read it since 1990, but uh, I really enjoyed it. and, And those lines stuck in my memory all this time. These intro snippets are so much fun. Let's do another one. This one came from Moto Gypsy, who I mentioned in a previous episode uh she's riding a motorcycle around Latin America. I believe she's in Ecuador or Colombia right now uh she's bringing attention to environmental issues and um some of the animal rights things that are happening there some of the um, activities some of the protests against mining and uh the oil exploitation and the destruction of the rivers and all those other things that are So fucking depressing that most of us sort of get paralyzed. I know I do. I end up sort of feeling like a deer in the headlights of an oncoming train of environmental despair every time I think about this shit. But some people get out there and do things and see it and get involved and risk uh, risk their safety. And so Moto Gypsy, she's doing that. Let's hear what she has to say. Hola, welcome to another Tangentially Speaking podcast. This is Janelle, aka Moto Gypsy. I'm an anti wildlife trafficking motorcycle journalist coming to you from the Andean cloud forest of Ecuador. I'm currently on a mission to document the positive things being done to protect ecosystems and fight the illegal wildlife trade. I post on various social platforms as Moto Gypsy and I have the pleasure of listening to Chris's podcast in my helmet pretty much anywhere I go. So nice to be right there in your sweaty helmet, Moto Gypsy. I've spent a lot of time in my own sweaty helmet, so it's a snug, familiar spot for me. All right, this episode is with Ram Sayed Emami. Uh interesting dude this is a special episode they're all special i know they're all like my children i love them all equally but some of them i'm especially happy to uh to introduce at a party um rom reached out to me sent me an email told me a bit about his situation and as you'll hear it's a it's a very intense situation um his father was an environmentalist in iran very well known prominent figure and uh he and the Iranian government um, sort of ran into some confusion and some uh some mistakes were made and well, I don't want to tell you the whole story Iran will tell it but It's a powerful story, it's an important story, and it's a story you don't get to hear every day from someone who's right there in the middle of it, Uh, someone who's got uh, particularly the kind of composure and and intelligence and wisdom that this guy has. So Ram and I, after recording this podcast, uh, he was in LA for a while and went to a party and we went surfing with uh, Kyle one day and so we've sort of become buddies now, so Uh, I'm very happy to say to number him among the many people who I've met through the podcast who've become important friends. So double gift there with this one. If you want to just jump ahead to the interview, probably go up about 30 minutes. So we're at almost 10 minutes now. I've got about 20 minutes of yammering to do here. So if you don't want to catch up with all this stuff just jump ahead to about the 30 minute mark okay now uh things to talk about uh first of all i appear to have forgotten to tell you that i was on netflix recently if uh somebody wrote to me and was like dude why don't you say anything about this on the podcast there you are on netflix you surprised me anyway it's um a thing on netflix and it's also on youtube because they put the first episode up on youtube so try to build up buzz i guess So if you're on Netflix, just find, um, monogamy explained it's called, and it's co-produced with Vox V O X. And if you don't have Netflix, you can find it on YouTube, same search, just monogamy explained and you'll see it there. They interview Dan Savage and me and, um, David Barish an evolutionary, uh, evolutionary biologist and, um, yeah, some other people, some authors. Uh, it's it's an interesting piece. Anyway, I did that. I sat for that interview in New Orleans. Um, and, man, they turned it around fast. So that's already out. Uh, if you support me on Patreon, you know about this because I know I sent a post to all the Patreon supporters about that. So uh, what else? Uh, stickers. We've got stickers. My mom's selling a lot of those stickers. Now... Uh, There are also decals for the car that say civilized to death. Uh, They're really nice. They look great on, they're white and they look great on tinted glass. So I got some of those on the van and and the old Toyota I drive around. And uh, if you want one of those, the guy who makes them is selling them to my mom and she's selling them. And so they're, yeah, everybody's in business together these days. Uh, What else can I tell you? The t-shirts, of course, are always there. Now, here's the thing. You know, you know how I am about money. I don't like talking about it. I don't like asking for it. I don't like hassling anybody about it. But you know, I'll go 4 or 5 episodes and never mention the Patreon thing and or the Amazon affiliate link and it, like I watch it sag. It just goes down. I can just see, you know, you get these reports and you can see like you know how many donors there are and how many supporters and all that. And you can just see like It's, you know, there's sort of a natural attrition as people's credit cards expire or whatever. They, you know, go give their money to someone else or whatever happens. Um, So that's normal. But normally more people sign on than go off. So there's sort of a steady growth. But then when I don't mention it for a while, it starts to sag. And so I kind of like I have to mention it. I hate it, but I have to because it works. So please, if you have any money and you like this podcast, consider giving me some because then it's. You know, it's an ongoing concern. Uh, And you help me pay for things like diesel, which I'm about to spend a shit ton of money on as Casilda and I drive up the West Coast recording podcasts as we go. we're leaving soon, a few days. Um, Yeah, so if you're in Portland or... I'm not sure where we're going to go, so I can't really set up events. But if you follow me on Instagram, uh, you'll see where I am as I post goofy ass pictures of the van and me and wherever we are. Um, And if you're around and like, if we're definitely heading to your town, maybe we'll, you know, make an announcement and have a get together and you can meet other people in town who come out. I'm always up for that. So we may go like, we're definitely going to Portland and from Portland, we may go to Seattle and Vancouver north or we may cut east into montana idaho wyoming and then back circle down through the mountains it all depends um my dad's health is kind of touch and go so uh depends on on how things go there if if uh things take a turn for the worse we'll come right back if not we'll drive around a little bit so uh okay i mentioned the netflix yeah all right here's the other thing that happened this week that I really kind of have to talk about is Anthony Bourdain. I know a lot of you are non-American listeners and you probably won't know who Anthony Bourdain is or was, but he had this show, he had several shows on TV. He was um, a chef. He um, He was addicted to heroin when he was young. He was kind of rough, had tattoos, had a Coke thing, was a bit of a douchebag he grew up he dropped the heroin he wrote a book about what it was really like to work in a kitchen in new york uh, sort sort of behind the scenes thing it took off and he became very famous and then he got a show on um ultimately on cnn i don't know where his first shows were but um i've never met the guy personally joe uh he was a friend of joe's they went hunting together in Montana and did some TV work together and you know Joe knew him pretty well Joe Rogan of course uh I never met Anthony but the thing is he was the kind of guy if you saw him on TV you felt like you knew him I mean I guess I had the kind of relationship with Anthony that a lot of you have with me where it's like a one-way intimacy um and it's real it's partial it's you know it's only half it's bifurcated I guess is the word for that but but it is real and the thing about Anthony Bourdain is that the guy you saw on TV was the guy that was him and Joe has said that other people who knew him personally said yeah that was him and you know I've told this story about how when I was pitching a show the producer I was working with asked me what I wanted my on air persona to be. And I said, I want it to be authentic. And he was like, Oh, authentic with air quotes. But I didn't mean authentic with air quotes. I meant authentic. And maybe you can't do that on TV. Maybe TV won't allow that. But to the extent that it's possible, Anthony Bourdain did it. And when I was pitching the show in L.A., I can't tell you how many agents and producers and you know people in that world said, "Oh, you're going to be the Anthony Bourdain of sex." That was always the thing, you because know, I was older. I'm not particularly beautiful. It's not, you know, it's not uh, Tom Cruise. You know, on, does a show about sex? It's some, some dude in his fifties who's been around and you know uses bad words like that's uh the Anthony Bourdain of sex and every time somebody said that to me I felt a little proud I mean I also thought like I think Anthony Bourdain's the Anthony Bourdain of sex but I'll take it you know uh if I was going to be associated with someone or compared to someone that was that was okay with me Fucked a lot better than Philip Seymour Hoffman but But then here's the problem. Um, He fell in love. And he left his wife. And I'm not blaming anyone. I don't know the particulars or really care. Everybody has the right to love who they love. And... um, But I think he made the mistake of... Attributing his happiness to that woman. And so apparently something happened. She was seen in Rome with someone else. There were photos. She posted some nasty shit on social media, telling him to fuck off or something. And he hanged himself. And, uh, You know, me, Joe, Kyle, Casilda, Aaron, pretty much all my closest friends, it was like one of our crew had died. It was like one of us was gone. And the feeling that I felt was this, Complex, or maybe not complex, but um, a powerful mixture of incredible sadness and real anger. Not at her for breaking his heart, if that's what happened not at her for, you know, whatever. It's not not at her at all. At him. Dude, you've been around the world 20 times. You've been up and down that mountain so many times. How do you make the mistake of placing your heart in someone else's hands? Nobody should do that. Nobody should place their happiness in someone else's hands, their survival, their very existence. Because that's a form of passive-aggressive brutality right there. You know, there's a song, uh, if, if you... What is it? If you leave me now, you know. Well, that's the BGs. You'll take away the biggest part of me. Yeah, I'm not thinking of that one. There's like a groovy, there's a groovy blues tune. Like I wouldn't know how to 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 make it without you. I mean, there are lots of songs like that. Every time I hear those songs, I I I think emotional fucking manipulation. I, I I'm bad that way. Like I I have a an alarm goes off. Someone tells me, like, if you left me, I'd be nothing. Like, fuck you. If you really believe that, you're nothing now. You need me to exist. You need me to be something. Then I got news for you. You're nothing. With me or without me. That's the problem. We've got this weird sense that dependency is an act of love. And it's not. If you love someone, show them that their presence in your life is an amazing, beautiful, incredible bonus. It's the spice on the food, it's not the food itself. If you tell someone you wouldn't survive without them, you're not giving them something. You're taking something from them. You're taking their freedom. You're taking their ability to be who they are, even if who they are happens to drift away from what you want them to be. And that's not love. So Anthony Bourdain, who appeared to not give too much of a fuck and his persona on TV was of authenticity without quotation marks. He was a romantic. Of course he was. So am I. So are most people who give a shit about anything. But there's a difference between being a romantic and being passive-aggressive and... trying to destroy other people for your own benefit. Now, I know people are going to listen to this and say, Chris, come on, man, he was depressed. He suffered from depression. You don't know what that's like. And you know what? That's true. I don't know what that's like. And I acknowledge that it must be something incomprehensible to me. Um, In other words, it's not just something I haven't experienced. It's something I can't imagine. I I acknowledge that. And so I hope what I just said doesn't come across as mean-spirited. I'm still pissed off at the dude. I'll probably be pissed off at him for a long time. Because, you know, I I read that thing, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago that um, John Perry Barlow wrote. It was his Rules for a Good Life. And one of them was, your life... Is not only yours don't risk it frivolously that's important your life is not only yours that guy reached hundreds of thousands if not millions of people and they loved him they cared about him he was an example of how to do shit without bullshit how to live without bullshit, how to go to foreign countries without fear, without assuming anything negative about the people you're going to encounter there. Much the contrary. He assumed positive and he found it. He was a good traveler. And that thing that he built, it didn't just belong to him. And so that night in Paris when he decided at 61 years of age that he was going to fucking check out. He took something away from a lot of people. He had a daughter. He had a girlfriend who loved him. Even if they were having turbulence, who gives a shit? You still love each other or you wouldn't do all that stuff. God knows he had lots of friends and he had lots of fans, anonymous friends, friends as yet unmet, which is what I consider you. Because the record is intact. I've met hundreds, if not thousands of you who are listening to this right now. And I swear it's true. I have not met a single one of you that I didn't like. So I think it's a pretty safe assumption that if we ever meet each other, you're probably going to like me. I'll be older and uglier than you think maybe. But uh, you'll recognize my voice and the way I think. And I'll like you because we already know we connect on some some deep levels. So yeah, it's not it's not your life isn't just yours, I guess is my point. So if you're bumming out and you're feeling like you're gonna you're thinking about finding the exit, just remember it's not just yours. People care about you. So stick it out for them. Um, okay. What else can I talk about? Uh, I was thinking there's, there's, uh, some friends of mine are going through some interesting stuff with, uh, with relationship drama right now. And I just want to talk about very briefly, this thing that I talk about sometimes, which is, uh, a formula that passion equals attraction plus an obstacle. I always think about that passion equals attraction plus an obstacle. So there's so many people in life that you're attracted to. Uh, even if you're very particular, you're going to meet a lot of people in your life that you're attracted to. And if you know, they're single, you're single, you're at a, you're at your cousin's wedding and like, yeah, let's hook up. You hook up. It's fun. Well, okay. See you later. Well, that's it. Great. You're not going to really remember that person probably unless it's, you know, you have some great chemistry, but in general, it's like, okay, that was easy. That was fun. Uh, the ones you remember, are the ones where there's an obstacle where you want to, but you can't, and then you want to more and you can't and you more. So it's like water building behind a, a dam behind an obstacle. And that's what creates the force and the power. That's what turns the turbines that light the city at night, that kind of backed up potential energy that then can be released occasionally so when you have this a long distance relationship or you only see each other every couple of months or you um you know one or both of you are married and so you have to sneak around and oh you know it's all bad shit it's all you know the well at least the, the cheating is bad not the long distance necessarily but you know a lot of the The obstacles are require lying and deceit, and that increases the intensity. But then what do we do? We remove the obstacle when we get together, we get married, we move in together, whatever, and then the passion dissipates and everybody's confused. Well, you know, take away the dam and you lose the reservoir. I mean, that's kind of the way it works, right? But I was thinking about people who have relationships where there's a vast age difference between them and uh, how that's sort of stigmatized in society and... It's funny because when I was young, I was super attracted to older women. I was attracted to older men intellectually. My closest friends were gay men who were 10, 15, 20, 30 years older than me and still are. I mean, Stanley's one of my best friends and he's a good 30 years older than me. Um, And I understand. Like, yeah, I want to hang out with somebody who's a lot older, who knows a lot more, who's, you know not going through the same bullshit I'm going through. So they've got some perspective on it that can be useful to me. I get that. And I get how that can be expressed and and experienced erotically. Sure. Why not? Um, I think the older person has a lot of responsibility. What Dan Savage calls the campsite rule to um, leave everything better than you found it to not give anyone any diseases or get them pregnant or Um, you know, take advantage of their lack of experience. And obviously that kind of abuse happens a lot and the younger person doesn't even know they're being abused, but, um, and maybe the older person doesn't either, but that doesn't, doesn't remove the responsibility. But I was also thinking about how that age difference is an obstacle that cannot be removed, right? You can't just you know go to a doctor and have a procedure and remove 25 years from your life. So it's it's interesting. It's it's one of the one of the forms of relationship where the structure can't really be modified by decisions that you make. It is what it is and that's always what it's going to be. All right, I'm done. I'm going to play you out with a song called The Hunter, uh, which is by our guest today, uh, Ram. His, he goes by King Ram. That's his stage name. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram uh, and, I guess, I don't know, Spotify and wherever, wherever you follow people. King Ram, R-A-A-M. This song is The Hunter, and I um, hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Catch you on the other side. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm I'm sitting here in my living room, just getting to know this guy, and decided it was worthwhile to turn on the mic so we can get to know each other uh, w- with your presence. Ram, what is your last name?
0: Uh, my full name is Ramin Sayedamami, but I've been called Rom since I was a kid by my mom. So King Rom, King Rom is
1: my artist name. That's yeah. your artist name. Okay, so you're a musician. Uh, what do you play? I sing and I play guitar and piano. Oh, okay what kind of style
0: um it started off as a very sort of post-punk project um i was really obsessed with joy division and bauhaus and depeche mode and as i'm getting older i'm sort of becoming that more cliche old folksy guy you know just sits in a corner with his acoustic and whining about you know the world
1: (laughs) welcome welcome to another edition of whining about the world uh all right, so it, when you got into that, were you living in Iran? Um, yeah, I, this was like around the year 2000, and um,
0: I, I was doing my mandatory time of, once you're 18 in Iran, you have to do time, you get conscripted into the army, you have to do like a mandatory two years term until you can leave the country again. But at the time, they were selling it off, and you only had to do three weeks at this like mm. summer camp for like adult teens type of scenario. And over there, I met um, this drummer, and he's like, "Hey, man, me and my friend, we have a band." And because I grew up in the states, I grew up in um, Oregon, Hmm. Eugene, Oregon. Oh, okay, uh, hippie town where my father was getting his uh, PhD, and. Um, my friend was like, "Well, you speak, you know, really good English. So why don't you become our singer?" And I was like, "I don't know how to sing." He's like, "Doesn't matter. You can speak English. That's all we need." <laughs> so by just by that simple process, I became a singer.
1: I think the lead singer to the Red Hot Chili Peppers had a similar kind of thing, like. What's his name? Uh oh, Anthony. Yeah, Anthony, uh, Anthony some Gittis or cletus or G- I like, Yeah, yeah. I could yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Pronounces last name. Yeah, I mean I, re- I remember some vague story about how his buddies were in the band and he sort of did poetry and they were like, "Come on, man, come on. They're playing at a party or something." And he's like, "I can't sing." I'm like, "Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just like rap your poetry." And cool. There you go. And he <laughs> speaks English. So, yeah. I mean, that's
0: And I mean it was fun and games in the beginning and um, we were really good at sort of pretending to be rock stars and uh, just acting like we were rock stars, you know, wearing up, you know, all this crazy sort of attire and we throw these underground shows in Iran and because you're not allowed to perform rock and roll publicly over there at the time. And um, we had to, like, have lookouts with, uh, you know, walkie-talkies. And we'd have the whole house covered in mattresses so the sound wouldn't go out. So the police wouldn't raid the place. Wow. So it was, like, this really intense, real underground. Not, like, hip underground. Like, if we were caught by the police, they would take us all away and, you know, give us the lashing and whatever hell, you know, that their their religion told so them So they to would do.
1: really do that shit? The,
0: yeah, you know, I mean, you, you, it, it would depend on who you would get caught by. Because there were certain police that you could you know, bribe and pay off, but there was like the religious police, the Basij, who are just completely brainwashed. And if you're confronted by them, there's no, no amount of money for you to buy your way out of that situation until mm-hmm. you get the lashing, <laughs> then you can go home. So that sort of mix of adrenaline and fear at those shows was so intense for us and the audience, you know, going crazy and dancing and having a great time. It was something that, um, I've never experienced since. Because, you know, in the West, you come and you perform and everyone's drinking their beer and they're talking right. over and they're, you know, um, it's it's not that interesting. You know, if, they, they might be interested in a few songs or it's, but over there, every song, every moment could have been our last. Right. So that's why it was so much more exciting and enjoyable yeah. to be a part of.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have this vague theory that there's a, it's almost like, you know, the conservation of energy, how energy can change forms, but the total amount always sort of remains the same, it applied to, I don't know, quality of life, quality of experience, something like Because I'm thinking about the most potent time in American culture in terms of music and fashion and, you know, cultural change and intense enjoyment. Was also, in, in my lifetime anyway, was late 60s, right? And Absolutely. that was also a time of incredible suffering, uh, the Vietnam War and the, the tumult in the cities and the riots and the police brutality and Chicago and all that. It, it, so, I mean, it doesn't really make sense in a scientific way, but there seems to be a correlation between oppression and creativity,
0: I think so, Um, and it's a bit, it seems like cliche at times, but it it does seem to be the case, especially with Iran, Um, you know, so we we were an underground band for several years, then we got a break um, to to come to the States, we went to South by Southwest, we were invited to go there. How did that happen? Um, We just, I just, you know, I, I had, I recorded this song in my room, and we just sent a demo to South by, and I didn't even think they would accept us and we got they said oh you're, you're you're accepted you can come and then the whole process of trying to get a visa started because we were from the axis of evil this was after George Bush had proclaimed the axis mm. of evil and right. Iran being on it so you could imagine how difficult the whole process of getting a visa was yeah. and that took like forever because we got denied once and then we had to get like you know Senator Chuck Schumer got like wrote a letter or something and some other governor wrote a letter we had to get like so many letters so the next time we went to, to the u s embassy to get our visas. They, they were like, you guys have some very big fans back in the States, apparently. And uh, they just gave us the visas, you know, without even interviewing us. Mm. I mean, I'm a Canadian citizen myself, a dual Canadian citizen, Iranian-Canadian, but most of my bandmates were all Iranian and right. they had never left the country. Um, so we finally got this break to come to the States, and we missed the festival because it took so long to get our visa clearance because you have to go through this whole security clearance process. But the good thing, the fortunate thing about that was that The New York Times and MTV wanted to write, like, a blurb about us at South by Southwest, being this band, you know, from the Middle East. But instead, they did end up doing a full story on us when we ended up in New York. Mm. And that little blip, I think, sort of broke our career for us in a way. Mm. Because when the New York Times story and the MTV stories came out about us, all of a sudden, we got several thousand emails from around the planet. Everybody, like, was talking about our story. And we got a lot of attention. And after that, we were invited to every other, like, major network and show. And we kept getting a shit ton of press. But we had a round trip ticket for like two weeks and two weeks turned into eight years. So we came here with like four hundred dollars each on the guitar and end up just, you know, crashing at different people's homes and just making a living on the road. You guys overstayed your visas? Um, No, we applied. uh, We kept reapplying it. We kept reapplying it until the the guys finally um, got like a more permanent status. Ah, cool. Uh, what was the name of the band? That band was called Hypernova. It was my first like serious band that I had, that I had made. And, but, but the success, it was, it, in a way, it was all the attention that I was getting in the press was only because that we were like this Middle Eastern band. It was like from a very Orientalistic sort of <laughs> approach of like these, oh, yeah. look at these animals in a cage. They know how to play an instrument. And right. to be honest, my music was really shitty at the time. <laughs> and I felt like I didn't deserve all of that attention. It felt undeserving, and um, deep down inside, I had this big sort of conflict with myself that you know you have to try better, you have to do, you know, your art has to really improve to, to deserve this kind of recognition. And we came to LA, and as I was telling you, I ended up meeting this billionaire and living with him in his mansion in, in in Beverly Hills for for several months. And he really helped us out too, and he connected us to a lot of interesting people, to the TED conference people. We end up playing at a huge festival for TED called Pangea Day, which was like broadcast to 500 million people around the world. And I'm backstage with all these celebrities and famous, you know, people and princes and kings and queens and politicians. And I'm in the middle of all these people, and we're doing blow in the backstage. And it's, it's, it's a wild ride, you know. And again, I feel I don't deserve all of this because I'm not good enough yet. So there's always like this constant conflict. And in the next several years, you know, we, we, we had our ups and downs and we had some modest success and we got signed. But the sort of cliches of the sex, drugs, rock and roll journey got the best of us with, you know, with all the, the, the madness around us. And I, um, I, I sort of, I was like, fuck this, I need to go and, you know, calm my, myself. And, and I heard about Vipassana, you know, that it's like this 10-day, mm. I'm not a very spiritual person. Mm. I Actually, I'm quite the skeptic when it comes to a lot of this, this stuff. And I, th- I thought, like, why not go and try this? This retreat, and I went away. You know, it's ten days of complete silence.
1: Yeah, no eye contact. No
0: eye contact. Yeah, you know, very, very cultish in a way. But um, it was, it was, it was really, it was really soothing. You know, in a way, it was just uh, for me to get away from all the madness for a while. Where did you do that? Um, Up
1: in Massachusetts. Yeah, I did it in Spain. Oh yeah. Twenty years ago, Casilda's done it twice. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like a spiritual like battery charger.
0: That's the way that I look at it, sort of.
1: Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, for for me, the experience of, of 10 days of silence and there's no reading, no radio, no media at all. It's just totally. And the point of no eye contact is that you're just supposed to be in your head the whole time. Right. And it kind of to me, it felt like um, peeling away layers of an onion. I came to memories of my childhood that I couldn't believe I still held in my head. It was very like some kid who stole my bike when I was five. I remembered his name, wow. you know, like memories of a house. I forgot I'd even, I thought I'd forgot I lived in. So there's this weird experience of like, wow, all those memories are in there somewhere. You know, it's like a giant library and I just never get to those stacks unless yeah. there's 10 days of nothing coming in, you know? Anyway, but before we move on to to the calm, can you talk a little more about the chaos and uh, you just went right by the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, no,
0: I go back, actually. I'm going to go back. So oh, okay. I went out, okay. and, but I crashed down again. So I, oh. I was good for a couple of months, but I, I, I delved again. So deep. the Vipassana was good? For only a couple of months. All right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then you lost the spell. But
0: I, yeah. And yeah. so I end up in New York again. And over there, I got this uh, loft up in Williamsburg which I later found out that we were actually squatting in. I didn't even know that we were staying in a league. I was just paying this guy rent, and apparently he was just pocketing the money, and the whole building was just illegal to be in. Mm. It was like this old factory. And in that place, my, my vision, I always had this vision that I wanted to create a, a, a place sort of similar to Andy Warhol's factory, where right. I would gather around all a, a bunch of artists and creative people, and we'd sort of have this really cool utopian community of ourselves. And it didn't turn out that way. It was much uglier and nastier. Um, it was it was uh, fun and games in the beginning, but um, uh, eventually my old bandmates from Iran, this band called the Yellow Dogs, they they moved in with me and a couple of other people and uh, this other musician Ali Eskandarian, which is like to me like the Iranian Bob Dylan and a couple of filmmakers and like writers and journalists and um, it was wild. I mean, the parties, mainly the drugs. Iranians? Yeah, mainly Iranians? Yeah, mainly Iranians, mainly Iranians. And it was really wild. I mean, the parties that we would throw there and the the amount of sex and debauchery and drugs. And it became so intense. And the house was just getting filthier and filthier every day. It was was really hard keeping it um, all together. And, you know, financially trying to make a living off of music is very difficult. So... You know there's this idea that and it's really funny because all my fans back in Iran thought I was like living this, you know, really lavish, rich lifestyle. They thought I had made it, you know, and I'm driving driving like a Bentley every day or whatever. Yeah. And but it was far from the truth. I was really miserable deep down inside. I wasn't happy, I wasn't content. I felt that there was too much pressure to succeed and to to sort of maintain this image that I wasn't. You know, whether it was like the agents or labels or people telling us, "Oh, you have to dress a certain way." Or, or act a certain way, I just wanted to be myself. And I felt that I was having this 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 huge philosophical uh, conflict with everyone around me in terms of trying to be myself. And I eventually, um, I fell in love with this girl in Toronto and I moved to Toronto and then with her I went to London. And the guys, the rest of the guys in the house, they moved to a new place in, in, in Brooklyn. And a couple months later, they, this, this other kid comes from Iran and I don't know, they get in a fight with him. They throw him out of the house. And that kid, who barely speaks a word of English, gets his hand on an assault rifle, comes back to the house, and shoots up the house. This was all over the news a couple of years ago. I mean, there's a big story in Vanity Fair about this whole this 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 incident and this tragedy. So the guy came and shot two of the kids, three of them dead, and uh, he shot himself on the rooftop at the end. And uh, it was like the, to take you always hear about it in the news about you know this type of gun violence but to experience it firsthand was just was just really shocking and especially with Ali kandarian was one of the guys who was also shot and he was he was like such a mentor to me he was mm. he was like this bigger brother that i that we all looked up to and it was so hard losing someone like him after that we were all really shattered um, you were in London at the time. Uh, I, at the time I was in Toronto. I came yeah. immediately to, to New York to be yeah. with the rest of the guys. And um, after that, you know, I, I was just reevaluating my life. Um, I came back to Toronto and I, I, uh, I went to university for a little while. I want to continue. I was studying international relations back in the day. I thought maybe I should just go back to school. Mm. But that didn't work out. Like going back to school, after living this crazy rock and roll lifestyle of ups and downs and, you know, this very adventurous lifestyle, the calm of the, the classroom was just, it just felt very suffocating. Mm. I, I couldn't focus. And even though I'm, I, I, I read a lot, I couldn't, I couldn't maintain that sort of disciplined mm. sort of approach towards the academic world. And uh, I decided to go back to Iran after eight years to be with my family because I was getting more miserable and depressed and suicidal. I felt like I couldn't keep up with this, this, this facade that I had created for myself in,
1: in, in, in the West. Can you do a quick breakdown? Because you said you're Canadian, but you grew up in Portland, Mm-hmm. And then you're in Iran, so yeah, it's a little bit all over the place. Yeah, so born in Canada, I take. It? Um, I was born in Iran actually,
0: uh, and uh, in this small town, Boucher. I'll, let it, I'll later tell the story about how I, how I was born because it, it, it relates to the story of my father, which right. I eventually want to get into. Yeah. Um, but when we were when I was two years old, we moved to the states. So I was there till I was like ten, eleven.
1: That's for your dad to do grad. Yeah, school.
0: do grad school <clears throat> in environmental science. Um, well, no, it's like sociology was uh, his main field. And um, uh, environmentalism and environmental work was his passion. Mm. Um, Then we moved back to Iran, and then my teenage years, we came to Canada. We we, we migrated to Canada uh, in the late 90s, and I was there for a couple of years until I went back to Iran, started the underground band and everything. With with your family in Canada? Um, Yes, with my family. But my parents, like, I mean, we were scattered. Everybody was, at one point, you know, we were one of those families that we traveled a lot around the world. and. One time, you know, it was very rare that the four of us were under the same roof at any Mm. given time. Uh, My brother ended up going to France and then, you know, to Dubai. And then he worked in China for, you know, the past several years. So Mm. everybody was all over the place.
1: Um, So a lot of back and forth. and um, So you're Canadian-Iranian citizenship, but you lived in... Oregon, when you were a kid. We weren't
0: Canadian then yet. We, oh, we became Canadian citizens in the later. 90s. Right, okay. I mean, my father okay. never got his green card here when we lived here in the States, which, right. you know, that's why he sent us to Canada in the 90s. He's like, you guys need another passport because the Iranian passport is the shittiest passport on the planet. You can't get into any country <laughs> oh, with deterrent. that passport. Yeah, yeah. You know, so he's like, your kids need to go over there and get a better education because the future isn't too bright. And. Um,
1: okay, so I interrupted you. Yeah. you. You were. All right, school. It wasn't working for you in Toronto, and you decided to move back to Iran. That's when you started the underground thing. Yeah,
0: that was no. So this time when I so I started the underground thing the first time I went back to Iran in two thousand. Oh, ah, okay. That was the underground. This time I went back. This is twenty fourteen. Um, it's after Rouhani became president. So uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Iranian politics, but. Um, in 2009 there was the, the Iranian you know there was a lot of protests happening the, the Green Movement right. uh, against Ahmadinejad and his camp who everyone felt that illegally sort of um, uh, won the election by you know a cheating and they, they were protesting against you know where's my vote and the the, the protests were violently suppressed many people died the, the leaders of the opposition have been imprisoned to this day as we speak they're still in, in, in house um, imprisonment um, so when Rouhani came, he came on this sort of platform of a more progressive platform, you know, even though he is a, um, he's also a cleric. Um, but, w- you know, the people sort of rallied around him, not to vote so much per se for him, but for, for what the opposition stood for. He, the, we wanted to vote against the hardliners, you know, a, a lesser of two evils, if you may. Which in hindsight seemed very stupid because sort of like American politics, I mean, they're both same, the same side of the coin. You know? yeah. um, but, you know, there was a general sense of hope within the country that finally our side, you know, the progressive side is picking up and we have a chance to speak out and, 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 and move our society in a more positive direction. And you could feel that hope in, in, in every sort of aspect of society. And we were on the brink of um, finalizing the nuclear deal with the West, And so after the nuclear deal was completed and everyone felt that, you know, we're we're going to enter into the international markets, you know, on a a much more global level. And once the doors start opening up, we're going to prosper. Everybody's going to prosper. But that wasn't the case, unfortunately. Um, The hardliners and the fanatics wield and control almost all of the power and, you know, and, and the wealth and capital in the country. So they, they always make the life of these reformers a living hell. So in, in all actuality, their, their, their policies, their, their aspirations are quite ineffective. But um, when I went back you know, I was with this hope of maybe I could do something, you know, positive for my own culture and my, my country, because that's what my dad always wanted to do. And for the first time, after like 20 years of being like an artist, I was able to get a permit so, in Iran, to be able to perform your music publicly, you have to get a permit from the Ministry of Culture. I mean, everything is very Orwellian over there. You know, it goes through so many different stages. Someone has to give you a permit for your lyrics. Someone has to approve the music. Someone has to approve the music and lyrics together. Oh, and in the fourth and final stage, you have to go through a, a security clearance. So, like, the intelligence will do a security check on your whole life and your background. Wow. Because... They want, you know, to control the, the the narrative and the medium. So so because you know when artists become very successful, and have a lot of followers, they can be potentially a a a a, a strength to mobilize mm. people. That's what they're afraid of. Um, but in the same, in a very twist of of of, of faith, they, they decided to to give more permits to more underground and alternative artists like myself. And I really thought like, why are they doing this? But now looking back at it in the past couple of years, I think their reasoning was so they could control it better. Mm. Even though I got a permit, they made life such a living hell for me creatively that they were pushing me to keep censoring myself Mm. to my performances and everything that I did, whether directly or indirectly through my producer I had this very wealthy producer who was backing me up because you can't work in iran without having someone who's connected to the government Mm. you need someone within the government to help you out because it'll become near impossible to get a permit or work any other way in, in the music scene and you know, one day I woke up over there after a couple of years of being back. And, and mind you, I had a lot of fans. And I've been performing in front of several thousand people and big shows and every night, like 30 nights sold out. So it was the most that I've ever been exposed to in terms of having an audience and people loving what I do. But I felt like there was a price on it as well. Mm-hmm. And I felt in a way like I was selling out my 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 authenticity and my creativity for, for a larger audience. And again, that really hurt my ego, you know, my, my my soul. You know, it just it 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 didn't feel what I what I stand up for. Um so uh I decided that okay I can't do this anymore and, and I wanted out. And that's when I came back to New York a couple of months ago, several months ago and I decided to restart again in the West. So and that's when I got the phone call that my father had been arrested, and um, that's actually one of the main things that I wanted to talk to you about today—the the, the story of my father, because it's, it's been in the news um, the the past little while.
1: Um, Be- before we get into that, I, um, are you? I mean, I know the, I saw the CNN thing that you sent me. Um, I know your mother's still in Iran. Is your sharing the story helpful to her, do you think? I, I'm, I mean, it's totally your call. Right. But I'm in these sorts of situations, I would never want any harm to come to anyone for having shared a story on this podcast. That's
0: a very good point that you raised, Chris, actually, because when my father was first arrested on January 24th, And I got the phone call. I was in New York. I got the phone call from my brother that dad's been arrested. And we were like, on what charges? I mean, this guy, he's lived the most transparent life. The immediate instinct of us and um, the pressures from within the country were to stay quiet. Don't say a word. Don't speak out or else things will get much worse. Right. Don't poke the tiger. Exactly. And if there's one lesson that I've learned from this whole ordeal is that when you have a loved one who gets arrested in a theocratic state the first thing you do is you talk you speak out as loud as you can so the world can hear because in the i mean this wouldn't have I wouldn't have said the same thing 20 years 20 years ago like in the pre-internet era of you know the pre-social media era where word couldn't get out yes right. it would have hurt your your efforts in in terms of saving uh, a loved one's life but now that's not the case because of the pressures that social media can can create through a, a, a mass wave of awareness, will, can put enough pressure onto the government, to, to, as, I, as I believe that we have put right now, um, to keep my mom safe, mm. which I'll get to. I, uh, um, that's why I think it's, it's good to share the story um, and for, for people to sort of know. And I think more importantly, it's not just, it's not just about my story right now. Um, you know, I always tell my American friends, you guys take your freedoms for granted. You know it's uh they have it you have it so well you know in the west and to not exercise your your rights over here is is the dumbest thing possible mm. you know but you know look what apathy and indifference got you guys in the last election you know it's i mean not just that but i mean i'm sure like it's it's much more complicated and complex than that that discussion it's for another time
1: <laughs> I'd, I'd like your insights into that but but okay, go go ahead. I just wanted to sort of get that on the table here. No, I appreciate that. That's
0: very respectful of you, actually, because a lot of journalists don't give a fuck. They're just trying to, and this is something I learned the hard way too. Because I've done so many interviews throughout my life, whether through my musical career or, or, or the work that I've done as an activist or the story of my father. A lot of times, you know, journalists just want their their sound bites, their headlines, and you know, it's it's. Because they have to compete with, you know, with so much, you know, the, people's attention spans have been like scattered everywhere. Yeah. So everyone's trying to like battle for your attention, and some people are ethical in their pursuit for this, and some people aren't. So it's a it's a very it's a very tricky it's a fine line to walk on. Yeah yeah but i i appreciate that and i respect that for you for you for you asking
1: well i'm no journalist <laughs> that's for sure
0: <laughs> no but like the understanding to even to mention that is something that you know i wish that every journalist would ask beforehand mm. i think it's very important but yeah so the story of my father uh it's um it's it's one that's very it's it's a very sad and tragic story um So, as I was saying, January 24th, my brother gives me a call, and I'm in New York, that, you know, dad's been arrested. And we were just trying to figure out why and under what charges. And apparently it had to do with um, uh, an NGO my father had founded with another friend of his. It was called the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation, which basically their job was, you know, trying to conserve and help wildlife. And, um, you know, especially the Asiatic cheetah, which was an endangered species back in Iran. Um, Apparently, from what we heard, and there was um, sort of rumors going around in in the media, um, my, my, my father and his team had stumbled upon... This is something my father never told me, so I don't even know if this is true or not, but this is what they were saying in the media, that they had stumbled upon, you know, some highly sensitive areas. There were, you know, um, nuclear contamination. They f- found nuclear contamination, you know, in mm-hmm. the soil, in the water. Or um, they found, like, m- you know, m- military sort of sensitive uh, sites. And, you know, they used camera traps to locate animals. They said they were using, the, the authorities were saying that they used these camera traps to take pictures of these sensitive areas and send this information to the West. In my opinion, it's all, you know, bullshit. It's all absurd. You know, the, the the accusations. I mean, they might have been in a sensitive area, but everything they ever did was with the permission of the government. And our father to the very last day, you know, he he was very transparent. The records are all still public on the site, financial or their activities. Everything is very transparent. It was a very successful NGO. They worked with National Geographic, with other big um, NGOs from around the world and protecting wildlife. They were also on the verge of starting another organization to sort of help with water conservation because there's like a big drought happening in Iran. Mm. And, But the, 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 to just to give a little more of a background to people who are unfamiliar with Iranian politics, um, the people who arrested my father were the intelligence unit of the Revolutionary Guards. So who are these people? These people are someone who um, work and operate beyond and above the rule of law. They're not a, an institution that's even considered part of the government. They're completely outside of the government, yet they wield the most power. Mm. The, the actual ministry of intelligence had no say in any of this. And it's been this case since the revolution. Um, the, the, the revolutionary guards are the ones who inherently hold the power. And they're obviously made of, of a band of very hardline, fanatical um, right-wing, you know, type people. You know, the, the the exact sort of spec other side of the neocons, if you may, that we have in the states. Mm-hmm. They're the other opposites on that end of the spectrum in True Iran. believers, yeah, true believers, very fanatical. And even though they're in the minority, they they wield the power. You know, they got the guns, they got the money, they got the mm-hmm. you know the oil, um, and anything that they find a threat to their existence, they will move in on. So they, they, they control almost all aspects of society. But um, NGOs were one of the few areas that were operating outside of their jurisdiction. Because NGOs had connections to foreign intellectuals, foreign wealth. And to them, you know, this seemed all very suspicious. I mean, by, if for them, if you're a dual citizen, that's enough evidence for them that you're a spy. Mm. You know, it's so observed the way that it's so Orwellian. The techniques they use to just take away people and, and to make them invisible. Um they don't need much to justify, you know, to themselves that someone is a spy. Oh, he made a phone call to so and so, oh, he's a spy. Right. You know, he made a trip to London once, he's a spy. I mean, that's all they need to convince themselves. Mm. And since they control the media and they have this big apparatus at their at their exposure, they can they can say whatever they want. So, when my father got arrested, um uh, we weren't too worried because my father, he teaches at a very surprisingly my a, a very hardline conservative university mm. even though my father was a very non-religious person um uh, he was a humanist you know more than anything else a, a pacifist and um but he believed that working in that school and that university he had a chance because the people who graduate from that university it's sort of like the Iranian Harvard or something where mm. people who graduate from that university end up becoming um, very important people in our society from right. ministers to other important positions so there are I mean, people all of his students who could have helped him exactly presumably. not just him but he wanted to change their minds open up their horizons in a way that these students who come in that university you have to have like a very hardcore Islamic background just to get into that university mm. and my dad was, was you know like I said he was completely non-religious. He was like one of the few alternative thinkers in that university. Yeah,
1: I'm surprised they would accept him there.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's where a lot of people always thought but oh your dad is like definitely in cahoots with the government and I was mm. like, you know, no, my my father was someone who just was really passionate about his country and he wanted to do good and by being in the beast of the belly, he felt that that's the the best way that he can contribute if he could change the minds of only a few of these students they could have a huge huge effect down the line when they become elected officials within right. the country
1: and he was teaching sociology teaching sociology and politics and in politics yeah so well. he's dealing with delicate matters Very in delicate the belly matter. of the beast exactly yeah. you know and i think he always knew the risks involved with yeah. his job huh. um but um do you think maybe something happened at the school and the environmental thing was just a pretext? Um, I,
0: it's it's hard to say. Really at at the end of the day there's you could look at it from so many different angles. Yeah. And um the fact that the school themselves, not one of them called us to ever say their condolences. And I'll tell you why. It's 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 such it's so crazy how overnight my my father um so on February ninth, um, uh, we get a phone call, my brother and I. I'm in uh New York, still, my brother could come to Vancouver now. And one of my dad's best friends, like, Are you sitting down? I need to tell you something. And I immediately knew that it, you know, this, this, he's about to break some terrible news. And I thought it was something to do with my mom, to be honest. But he's like, Yeah, they just said your dad killed himself in prison. And I couldn't believe it because two weeks before that, you know, um, on a scale of one to ten, I was worried on a one because I might my dad again like I said he was he had a very transparent life he had very powerful friends, a well known intellectual professor um I thought there was no way in hell anything would happen to him, and that was the problem because we had we we sort of this this fear becomes so embedded within your life and and it's so, such a huge part of our culture growing up with that fear and that Orwellian state that you know speaking out becomes like uh, the wrong thing to do like i was saying earlier you know we felt like oh i shouldn't speak out or some you know something bad something worse might happen because they had threatened us if you'd speak out you know shit will get much worse so when, when when they broke the news um and and mind you my father went it's, it's 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 very strange like the way that he got arrested also he voluntarily went to a police station he was actually on holiday in the north of iran and he goes there with a friend. And he's, like, all happy and comfortable. And, they, th- like, as soon as he gets out of the car, they throw a bag around his head and just yank him away and take him. That's the last he's ever seen. They let his friend go, but they take my dad away with the bag around his head. And my father was a very healthy man. He was, like, climbing the summit of the highest mountains in the world. And, you know, he's a hardcore outdoor, you know, enthusiast and and and, and camping lover, hiker. Two days before he was arrested, he was climbing, you know, a mountain with our dogs. You know, so he was in really good shape as well. At the same time, when they arrested my father, they raided our home in Tehran. Thirty, like, uh, of the authorities raided our home. They they just went inside. They ransacked everything. They took eight to nine suitcases of all of our personal belongings, hard drives, computers, laptops, photo albums of our childhood. Um, My musical instruments from my studio, because I had a studio in the basement which they claimed the basement was being used as a tunnel for them to escape, you know. They took all my musical equ- equipment saying that it was being used for espionage. So, all of a sudden, you know, uh, they've, they've, they've taken our father away, they've raided our home, and they've, you know, accused him of, of a threat against national security, and they created him into this James Bond character... Um, who had worked with MI6, CIA, like uh, Mossad? Like, it's just
1: absurd. Is this all like in the media? Yeah, in the right? media. Oh, okay.
0: On February 9th, when we get the call that he's passed, uh, my brother and I immediately, against the advice of all of our friends and family, returned to him and they said, You guys are going to get arrested too if you come back. We we're like, fuck it, we have to bury our father. I mean,. And as you know, I get home and there's so many people in our house and uh, everyone's mourning and crying and I get to my mom and I haven't been able to talk to her since because she was just broken down. And I asked my mom, like, what happened? And it's the darkest part of this story is the way that they broke the news to my mom. It just shows the level of cruelty of the people that are involved. They called my mom and said, we have good news for you. You can finally see your husband. And they said, you have to come in and we're going to take you to see him. So my mom goes to the district courthouse and she's taken away immediately to a room where she's interrogated aggressively for five hours. Just shout at, She's disrespected. They're swearing at her and accusing her of being complicit. And she's just crying and crying. She's like, I just want to see my husband. And they after five hours of interrogation they say you're of no use to us but you can just finally see your husband by the way he's dead and the cruelty of that to 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 someone you know like as loving and as compassionate as my mother is something in a million years i never our family would have to experience
1: Sorry, just I just get really emotional. I understand. I can't imagine. And and we're talking about five months ago. No, less than that. February. Yes, May. Three months ago. Yeah.
0: So it's very fresh. This wound still, you know. And my mom goes and she sees my dad's body, and um, you know, there's bruises all over his body. You know, there's a marking on the back of his neck, but not the front of his neck. I'm, I'm not a forensics expert, but I'll tell you why things get weirder and stranger when this story gets more complex. So my brother and I, as soon as we get back, we go to the coroner's office with, with our lawyers. Um, and they first of all, they can't find the body. He's not in the system. He's like it's of such like sensitive data that he's not even in the system. So they have to go and they call up the higher bosses, and then all of a sudden, all the higher level bosses they come down and they start greeting us and offering us sweets and teas and talking to us in a very apologetic tone, which is very strange. It's almost as if they know they fucked up because there is no reason for my dad to kill himself. He had like the greatest life. He, he, you know, the 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 amount of love and service that he had done for his country, you know. Unless, you know, he was tortured, you know, psychologically or physically, there was also this talk of, you know, a truth serum that they use in prison because other prisoners, you know, um, and there were signs of injection, you know, on a, on his body as well. And maybe overdose of a truth serum. I mean, this is all speculation. I don't think I'll ever actually know what the, the real truth of how it happened. But, um, yeah, the, the, the tone of the higher up authorities was very apologetic almost as if they were telling me oh yeah your your father was such a great man but you know unfortunately he was a spy i'm like what do you mean like you know do you guys have any evidence you know one of my very first questions to them was okay if he's a spy convince me his son and show me the evidence that my father was a spy because on the hard drives that you have taken from us on those computers my mother was one of those you know crazy moms who takes a picture every fucking day of your life like our whole life is documented Mm. on those hard drives you can easily go through them and see where he was every single day of his life. And, oh no, we have the data, we know we have the evidence, but it's sensitive, we can't share that. I'm like, no, but I'm his son. You should be able to convince me if you're saying this. So, after going back and forth, um, they sent us to a district courthouse to get permission for our lawyers to be. They're like, oh yeah, your lawyers can't be present. So, we have to go to a court, uh, to the attorney general to get like a, a permission to, so they could always be present with us at all these high level meetings. And while we were there, um, the uh, the district uh, uh, prosecutor um, he he said that I'll have a video I have to show you of your father committing suicide. I'm like, we'll bring it over, and they brought it over like within like half an hour. Something which is again unheard of to so to show that kind of sensitive data from inside um, Evin prison. And Evin prison in Tehran is the most notorious prison probably in all of the Middle East. It's where you know all the um, politically sensitive prisoners and high level security prisoners are being held It's, it's especially the section my father was in called Banda Alephedot is the most high level security dangerous place to be in like once you go in there like there's no coming back and so they have they say we have a camera of your father committing suicide and there's only a camera just showing the room and you know my father comes to the room he's pacing around and you know he takes off his shirt and, you know, he puts it around his neck, but he takes it off again, and he's still walking. And then he goes into the bathroom. There's a bathroom beside, adjacent to the room, or so they say. We don't know what that adjacent room is. You just see him go leave yeah. the room through yeah. a doorway. And eight hours later, someone opens the door like, to bring breakfast, and then he goes call someone, and then they come and bring his body out of that room. Now, how is that even possible that This is the first, like, suspicious thing of this whole story is, like, how does the highest security prison in in all of Iran not monitor a prison 24-7? Because my best friend, his dad is also in in prison right now. He tried to commit suicide twice in the past couple of months. They torpedoed the room within 15 seconds of his attempts. They were saying we don't have a camera in the bathroom because it's against religious law Mm. to watch another man. (laughs) You know, I'm sure they're lying. Suddenly, they're very
1: respectful. Yeah,
0: suddenly they're very respectful. You know, when it comes to them, you know, taking a bathroom break. But I'm sure they have, you know, footage of that room too. And even if they didn't, they could have had footage or, or or a photo of my dad, you know, and his and and his body being hung from somewhere. And then even in the media, they started talking about how there were different versions of it was in the corner of the room. No, he lunged off the bathroom. So they didn't even have like their story wasn't even. Uh, they weren't even sticking to one story. So it just kept adding suspicion to us. And for us trying to delve deeper into the truth and the reality as to what actually happened to our father
1: in that situation. Why, why do they give a shit what you think? Why are they trying to convince you with this video or letting your lawyers? Are you from a prominent family? Is there some reason for the government to be concerned about I think
0: my, my personal take on all of this is that they know they fucked up, because my father wasn't an innocent man. My father was had a very clean record. He was a not only was an innocent man, he was a great man. They should have built a, a statue in his honor for all the things that he did for our country, for all the service that he did. I think the fact that they realized that my father um, was a um, very beloved man both within the left and the right spectrum of the political scene through the rich and the poor. He was friends with tribal leaders and nomads all across the country. You know, my father was the epitome of a philosopher king, if we could ever have one. A very Mm -hmm. humble person who was very charismatic and was ideal and fit to lead, but had no desire for power.
1: So he was well-known within Iranian society.
0: He was, you know, and and especially in very influential circles. And I think they also realized that, you know, he has a very sort of uh, a powerful grassroots movement behind him as well. But again, um, um, and I think a combination of that and me being a pseudo celebrity, because I started speaking out halfway Mm. through and they saw the media storm that had started. I That's why they were trying to convince okay. me as well. Because they, right. they kept telling me to shut up and not to you say some more. Leverage. Exactly. And as soon as I left there, you know, I told them, like, let's try to, like, keep this in a very civil manner. What's done is done. As soon as I set foot out of the court, they started attacking our family. And by attacking, I mean, the, 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 like, the slander and the lies and the accusations they started creating about my family. And because they, they took all the personal footage they had confiscated from our home and they built a video around they put scary music on it you know and they they took all the images from our personal camping trips into the outdoors and used that as evidence like my dad in his underwear petting our dogs you know saying like dogs are like you know you know dirty you know considered in islam they're considered Mm -hmm. dirty animals like look at him this guy in his underwear he's drinking alcohol and he's petting his dogs that was their evidence that he's a he's a spy he's 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 you know collaborating with the west They at one point they showed the scene of us listening to a football match. We had we had we had used our radio antenna to tie it to a fishing hook so we could get more range. And the audio is very visible in our original video that we're listening to the football match, it's like a World Cup qualifying match, because we were out in the wild, we didn't have a TV. And they took that scene, took out the audio and said this is how they were using this is what they were using to send sensitive data. I'm like, right. dude, we live in the internet era. Who the hell is going to use a, a, a radio? Like World War II kind yeah. of technology. So it's just really Man. absurd. So the deeper we got into this story, it just it just didn't make any sense. Um, but one of the things from their side is that the the, the revolutionary guards and the hardliners always want to make an example out of certain people to say hey we run the fucking show this this idea of this progressive reform sort of liberal movement is bullshit you know we are the ones who who call the shots hmm. and they make life a living hell for any progressive type people who try to get into government i think ultimately they want to like there there's like a sort of a soft coup d'etat happening behind the scenes and they're going to very soon i mean they already have all the power but they're going to consolidate whatever is left To be completely in their own hands, and if I were to guess, they would want to say, "We're the ones that sort of helped, you know, broker a deal with the West, and we're gonna, we're the ones that gonna, like, you know, start, you know, opening relations because they know the economy is in shit. They know people are protesting left and right across the country. Everybody's upset, so they want to take credit if there's credit to be taken somewhere. Mm.
3: So there's a lot of isn't there like a
0: huge bulge of young people in Iran? Oh, absolutely. Like, and that's the thing. Like, the majority of people in Iran, like, I, I think the official, I don't know the exact number, um, but it's somewhere around, like, 70% are under 35. Yeah, yeah, I read something and about that. And um, these people, these kids and these young adults are, they're not concerned with the revolution. You know, they're not concerned right. with um, uh, Islamic ideals and values.
1: They don't remember the war with Iran. They don't
0: remember the war. They don't care about the war. I mean, just to give you like a small example of what it was like when I was younger in Iran, we got, I, me and my girlfriend once got caught by this, um, uh, one of these uh, Basijis, these um, the vigilantes, police. these Muslim vigilantes. Mm. And the guy like beat the shit out of my girlfriend in front of me. And they were standing, you know, over me with an AK-47. And we, you, 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 you realize that, you know, the guy was, you know what he was shouting? As it was, he was like, I didn't fucking go to war. So you kids could just fuck around, you know. They had like this sort of resentment. My dad went to war too. He, my dad, volunteered. You know, when he went, when when he was younger, he was forced, like because they were running out of forces. He was teaching near the Iraqi border at the time. I I always ask my dad. I'm he's like a pacifist. I'm like, Dad, did you kill anyone? He's like, I just closed my eyes and shoot in the air, hoping not to hit anyone. But back to the point of the the viciousness of these people. And I think something that relates to a lot of what you do in terms of your research. I'm I'm no you know sociologist or anything, but if I were to surmise, a guess in terms of a lot of these sort of fanatical, violent episodes in Iran, it comes from a lot of sexual resentment and sexual frustration. Yeah. Um, The way that you look at our society, um, uh, it it it, especially like 20 years ago to now. Now everyone's like it's become the, the opposite when they were very sexually conservative 20 years ago now it's become like there's like this insane sexual revolution where I've everyone's heard about sleeping that. with everyone everyone's divorcing like we have like one of the highest divorce rates in the world like it's become crazy and even like within the the muslim community there's something called sireh which is legal prostitution they just read a word like a, a line mm-hmm. i think from the from the Quran or like a Hadith or something, and they say, "Okay, now it's kosher. You know, now it's good. Now you're good." Kosher. to Kosher, go. <laughs> not kosher. That's the wrong word. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get into trouble it's for about that. One. The worst, the yeah.
1: wrongest word you could have come up yeah. with there. Yeah, it, it's it's like a temporary marriage. It's right? a temporary marriage. You, yeah. you define yeah. the time. Yeah, you, let's do this for like two
0: hours or twenty-four
1: hours. Right. So it's like legal prostitution in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I someone told me that that there are like all these sex parties happening in Tehran. Like kind of like your underground music thing, like yeah. the, you know, they soundproof the walls and they have these orgies and it's like a total. Like, I mean, I was invited to a swinger of party
0: too. You know, you just go with your car keys and you whoever picks up what. I'm like, what? This is happening in Iran? Like right. I was, I was it's surprised. like the
1: '70s in America is happening now in Iran. Yeah, and yeah. but
0: you mix that with like the, the 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 conservatism and the fundamentalism, so it creates like this weird cauldron of insanity and people just being all over the place and. Like, please, everyone who's listening, take all of what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I don't want to just generalize the whole society because it's it's much more complex than than
1: all of this. Sure. And then there, I'm sure there are class distinctions as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, um, another funny story is like once my dad and I were out camping and we're staying like in the middle of nowhere and we went to a villager's hut and he wanted to like serve us dinner. And, you know, in the background, he had a satellite TV on, on a hardcore porn channel. As if it was like some soap opera, just playing in the background while we're eating dinner, and there's like this big, you know, orgy happening in the background on the TV screen, as if like it's like they're watching Friends or something. It was like so
1: surreal. Those are good friends, <laughs> friends with benefits. Friends with benefits. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah that that sounds crazy. Um, it, it's hard for me to. I've never lived in a in a society. A religiously controlled society. I mean, I certainly, the United States, as you alluded to, there there are parallels with the sexual frustration and the anti, pleasure and all that, but it functions in a different way here. Um. Anyway, sorry, I, you were you were talking yeah, about yeah. I mean, In the states, the, you
0: can't be anything but a Christian and become president, or you have to at least
1: pretend to be one. You have no? to pretend. Yeah. Although, Ber, you know, Bernie's the first Jew who mm-hmm. really had a chance. Yeah. And I don't know. He doesn't seem to be very religious about it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. America. Let's not get onto to America. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, that's, that's like a... Um, but, um, so, basically, after my father's death, um, the next couple of weeks in Iran, we were constantly harassed and bothered by the Revolutionary Guards. We were threatened. They told us, if you speak out, we're going to, you know... Uh, they even told my mom, we're going to put you in the same place where your husband was.
1: Um, Was your mom speaking out at this point? No, she wasn't. They they forced her
0: to sign a paper that she wouldn't speak out. So my brother and I were doing all the talking. And then did they ask you to sign it? No, no. You know, it's like I told you in the beginning when they were talking to us, to my brother and I in an apologetic tone, they knew that my brother and I were crazy and we didn't give a fuck. We were, you know, cause what else did we have to lose at this point?
1: Was your brother or is your brother a public figure in Iran as well?
0: Um, no, but you know, he's, uh, my brother was like this very wealthy, successful, not wealthy, but like a successful like businessman. But I, and I, like I was saying, he's like this sort of corporate Buddhist type character. He's mm-hmm. very Zen, very calm. Um, He's 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 like my greatest inspiration in life. He's w- without him, I would have fucked up so much more in my life. Is he older than you? He's younger, he's surprisingly. Younger. Uh, yeah, and um, but similar, close, close. Yeah, age, just right? a couple of years yeah. younger, and. Um, yeah, so my brother and I, we were tackling, you know, this, this issue from different angles. I was the more, being like the pseudo-celebrity that I was, I was more outspoken in the media. My brother was behind the scenes going to, like, all of these private mm-hmm. meetings with the officials and trying to figure things out. And they realized very quickly that my brother and I are, are completely, co- completely fearless in this, in this sort of procedure. So they really wanted to do everything they could to, to make us afraid to not speak out. And after enough harassment, we, we decided that it's best to go to Canada, back to Vancouver, and just just grieve in peace and in quiet. But um, on March eighth, when we went to the airport, um, we you know we had ten suitcases and our three dogs, German short hair pointers, and a bunch of you know uh, luggage and. Uh, We had even our friends come with us, chaperone us to the airport because we were worried that they might, you know, try to take us away. We brought a big posse with us to like somehow prevent that from happening, even though it would have been useless. This is when you really know who your friends are. Exactly. Um, You know, as I said, you know, earlier after this incident, people became so afraid of contacting us um, that they wouldn't even answer the phone on us anymore. Very close friends of my parents wouldn't even answer the phone anymore because hmm. they were afraid of even being associated to us. That's how much fear and terror they instill into people in that yeah. kind of society.
1: Why, why didn't they just
0: arrest you and your brother? Um, but we, we thought we would have been arrested any day. I think because we, we spoke out in the media, we made such a big scene of it, and the whole world it's, we magnified this case on such a large scale that they knew, because I think they already knew that they had fucked up with my dad. They knew if they had taken one of us away as well, it would have just added to the storm and they were just trying everything in their power to do to, to silence us and by taking one of us away I think it would have caused a much more bigger uh, political
1: storm than they could have anticipated what are they worried about though because they don't have it's not like they're gonna lose trade right I mean they're right. kind of cut off from trade with the west as it is China I guess probably buys right. a lot of Iranian oil they don't give a shit I
2: think there were what, stir what's the there,
0: there, there are still certain elements within the government who even though they are um a part of that establishment they they don't want this they don't want the added pressure because they're they keep trying to open up you know diplomatic channels with the world so um the other higher level uh, officials especially from the the presidential side of the government I'm sure they were involved in trying to like kept telling the revolutionary guys regards- for the sake of, you know, our own existence, please
1: just shut up and stop harassing yeah. this family. So it's not what they'd lose. It's what they wouldn't be able to get with opening up exactly relations. So you're at the airport.
0: We're at the f- airport. To, you know, we're, we're sitting there and, and joking about the ending of Argo and how, you know, how tense and crazy this scenario is and if the, we're, they're going to let us leave the country. And we honestly didn't think... I mean, I thought I was the one who was going to get stopped when all of a sudden a plainclothes official ran into the building and said... Who's Maria Mombeini, my mother? And we knew immediately that something was wrong. And a Revolutionary Guards officer came and said that, yeah, she's barred from leaving the country. You have five minutes to decide whether the rest of you want to get on that plane or not. Oh, and the dogs can't get on the plane. And they just kept, like, making all these excuses to, like, you know, make us more panicked. And my mom, being the unconditional loving person that she is, she begged and pleaded my brother and I. Because my brother and I were like, we're not getting on that plane without you. And she begged us to get on that plane. She's like, "I just want you guys to be safe. I just want you guys to be out of here, and I don't want you to ever come back under any circumstance." Those were like her parting words to us. And she's like, "Just figure out how to get me out of here from 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 the other side." So you can imagine how devastated we were. And you know, I had watched so many like you know movies, <laughs> you know these these political th- thrillers that during this whole time, you know, I had made some video recordings of myself that I'd sent to journalists. I had CC'd, I had like drafted a bunch of emails. Cause I have a lot of journalist friends. And throughout my career, I've, I've made contacts within the, like the highest, you know, uh, the most important papers and, and news networks around the planet. Also because of my father as well, he knew a lot of these people, a lot of like, you know, important journalists will always ask my father for advice or opinions about the political environment mm-hmm. in Iran. So I had, I, I had, a, I had a, a draft edited for a plan A, a plan B, a plan C scenario. And lo and behold, when they stopped my mom, I had an email ready. I immediately sent that email out, this mass email to the journalists all around the world that my mom's been detained. And immediately, like 10 minutes, later, as soon as my brother and I were on the plane, the that on the, the, there was a big Twitter storm and the word started getting out. And it got shared all around the world, started from the New York Times. New York Times were covering this story very heavily. Mm and um so by the time my brother and i landed you know um in canada there was a huge like press conference like waiting for us there was a huge like, a bunch of cameras and journalists waiting for us at the airport hmm. in, in canada by the time we landed in that span of you
1: know getting from yeah. tehran to vancouver that's how much it must have been strange you sent it out you got on the plane you guys are destroyed emotionally absolutely you've got a 16 17 hour flight or something yeah, it's a, it's a long flight No idea what you're going to find when you land Yeah, we're trying to do everything
0: we can you know, we, we bought Wi-Fi on the plane We were oh, contacting okay. with people So you, you did know, have yeah, some contact Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we were just contacting everyone that we could To, to figure out the scenario and um, by the time we landed, you know, we there's there's video of it too. Me giving an interview, and I'm all teared up, and I'm just really upset and angry. And actually, the Canadian officials they meet us at the airport. They we don't even go through. You know, they take us to a back room. They you know um, they uh, they ask us some questions about what's happening in the situation because I've already been in touch with the Canadian government. And. Afterwards, my brother and I, we went to New York, and we started meeting a lot of officials in New York, UN, UN Commissioner for Human Rights, Prince Zaid, other UN officials. We went to a lot of uh, EU countries, um, their diplomatic offices. I met the Foreign Minister of Canada over there. And the Canadians at first were very conservative in terms of how to approach this, this this situation, because 13 years prior, there was another Iranian-Canadian who was killed in that same prison, Zahra Kazemi, a photojournalist, which they nonchalantly, in the middle of all this madness, came in between headlines were like, oh, by the way, she wasn't a spy. You know, and that's one of the reasons... Iran
1: said this? Yeah, yeah. Very
0: nonchalantly in between headlines in a small section of a paper, you know. Um, So it just goes to show that there's a lot of infighting within the different factions of of power within Iran as well. Hmm. And... Um, that's one of the reasons we decided to go to Canada because we, know we didn't want to drag this thing out for the rest of us. we didn't want this to define our lives just be there looking for an answer and trying to figure this thing out you know while we just because my father was such a, a, a loving person full of life he would want us to go on and continue his legacy living a very happy fulfilling life he wouldn't want us to just sit around and mope and be depressed um, so being in Iran wouldn't have helped we, we would have had much better success at, at living a ha- happier healthier life in the west so you know we, we kept pressuring the Canadian government because they, they didn't want to speak out about too much like oh the, the prime minister should be our last resort I was like no that's our first resort and we build up from there so the prime minister mm. finally made like his first twitter statement and he talked about it in the parliament and then they became, it became a very important you know priority on their, on their list and now you know the foreign minister calls my mom you know every other day you know, so the, the prime minister is commenting on this. Yeah. And um, so the Canadian government at the highest level, they're, they're in talks with the the Iranian officials, even though they don't have direct diplomatic relations, because, you know, they're trying to open up embassies and they're representing countries. And mm-hmm. my mom has become the snag in the middle of all this. Good. Which is good. Again, yeah. it buys my mom protection. Exactly. You know, that's why, you know. We're, we're, that's why raising awareness and talking about this, and contacting as many officials, you know, from Frederick, Federica Mogherini and the Europe, European Union, but even a lot of these people that we keep contacting in their offices and their people, you realize how you know uh, dark this this whole bureaucratic political world is, and how people aren't willing to burn any political credit, you know, just to save the life of one person, right. and, it, and not that they don't want to. It's just that it's such a mess of a bureaucracy, this whole system. That, um, but it's still, as much awareness as we can raise, the more people that, that are pressuring the Iranian government, and we're pressuring them from all angles, that they're, they're just in shock right now. That, holy shit, how do these kids know so many people? Mm. You know, I think that's one of their biggest miscalculations because at my father's funeral in Iran, you have no idea, Chris, how many mothers came, teared up, broken hearted, and put, took my brother and I aside and said, thank you for speaking out because our sons also died in that same prison, but we never even got to see the body. They just gave us a phone call that we have buried your son in some unknown grave in the middle of nowhere. And do you know how many of these unknown people there are that none of us will ever hear about in history who died for nothing, just some poor young student who went out to a protest one day and got taken away and killed in prison? So the story became bigger than us, than just my family and my father. You know, it became a, a very important fight for our basic right to life and to, 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 to expression, to freedom of expression. And um, as the, the more that we go forward, the more I realize how important it is to speak out about everything. Now, you know, the, it's been a couple of months. My mother's been away, and she was very sick. She was in the hospital, actually, last week. because She had an anxiety attack, and she's not doing well, obviously. You know, my mother was with my father since she was 17, she gave birth to me when she was 18, mm-hmm. so you can imagine, like she's only known my father her whole life. That's all she's ever known, and for her to be in this isolated, lonely yeah. situation right now, it's just heartbreaking. I talk to her every day, but it just burns me inside to see that you know she's not with us, and we're doing
1: everything that we can you know, well, to I, get reunited. Well, I, I, again, I, I'm all, I'm so confused about the the motivations. They think
0: that my brother and I will stay silent if they harass my mother, if they keep her away from us. But it's
1: the opposite, exactly. I mean, you guys
0: are not going to let up until she's out. I mean, why wouldn't
1: they just send her to Canada? And exactly, this would have been over.
0: It's miscalculation after miscalculation on their on their behalf, and like even the whole operation of raiding our homes and arresting my father and his death. Everything about it is so messy and unnecessary. Yeah, and I think it's because they realize that they're at the end of the ropes of their sort of existence they feel that their backs are against the wall even our like we had a couple of contacts in the Revolutionary Guards even they themselves were saying that you know
1: we know that we're near our end hmm because of the the West, uh, things are going to relax with the West. And it will not that, because domestically, the country
0: is in, 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 in shits. You know, The economy is doing uh, terrible. Our they, currency they is one of the most devalued. Cur- Our currency dropped 40% in the last three months. That's huge. Hmm. That's huge. And the way that it's devaluing right now, the government is doing everything it's, it can to just try to destabilize the currency and the economy, but they're not hmm. able to. Because you know, they there's been so much corruption, and you know the the, the government uh, well, not the government, but like the fanatical factions of the government have invested so much of that money in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon mm. instead of investing it on its own people, mm. and the people have had enough. Whether they're conservative, conservative or liberal, you're
1: talking about Hezbollah and, and other Basically, movements, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, when, 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 when Bush invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam, it was the greatest gift to Iran because, you know, they yeah. essentially took over Iraq with their Shia influence. Right. It was the greatest gift to Iran, you know, and it, it only destabilized the region much more with the mess in Iraq and Syria and the birth of ISIS. It just, it, 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 it's so absurd that the West never seems to learn that there are sort of foreign intervention. You know, as much as I hate the Iranian government, I still firmly believe that they have to exhaust every diplomatic channel and if there's anything change to be happening it has to happen domestically because if you even look historically the root of so much of the problems that exist in the Middle East that have sort of uh, spread to the rest of the world started from foreign intervention right. whether it was through the imperial drawings of lines between um, you know uh, nomadic people tribes people who had nothing to do with each other they're all, all of a sudden forced to live beside each other to the most famously, the the democratic overthrowing of the um, uh, Iranian prime minister, Mossadegh, in 1953, who was an anti-Western, anti-imperial sort of uh, uh, character in our history, that the overthrowing of him, I think, as you've probably seen in many documentaries, um, sort of kick-started this
1: this line of uh, Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East. The Shah and and his henchmen being trained by American military on how to torture and suppress rebellion within the country. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's incredible how naive, how willfully blind so many political commentators are to how all these things started with Western intervention.
0: Right. And then people always ask, why do they hate us? Yeah. They hate why us for our
1: freedoms. Us? No, you asshole, you they, know, because they you you're dropping bombs on them. You're overthrowing, Democratically elected governments, you're you're arming. I mean, right now there are you know U.S. arms dropping in Yemen. Right. In I mean, when Saudis. I
0: was studying the Iran Iraq War, for example, it's 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 heartbreaking when you see the how how dirty and nasty the po- politics involve. I mean, Rumsfeld who was at the head of the neocons who was later who was buddy buddy, you know, with Saddam Hussein at the time in the eighties, and there's yeah. many like footage of him, you know, hugging and shaking hands with Saddam yeah. was at the head of the neocons invading, you know, and pushing for the invasion of Iraq. They only until they're useful to them you know, do, do they stay in power, these types of people. I mean, in the eighties during the Iran Iraq War, you know, the Americans were selling weapons to both well, Iran science. and Iraq. <laughs> yeah. You know, through business, the Iran-Contra scandal, which I'm sure you're very sure. aware of, you know, and yeah. Oliver North being at the helm of that. And surprisingly, and I just read that NRA. he's going to become, yeah, he's going to be the head of the, <laughs> and I'm surprised. I'm like, how do people who politically <laughs> fuck up on such a large scale seem to keep getting back into positions of influence and power? Yeah. How does that happen? Um, it's it's something that's that's very disturbing. And I feel like the people who always have the most desire for power are the most people unfit to be in that position. Yeah. But that's just a sad thing both about my country and, you know, and, and the States, it seems to be the case.
1: I I think that's a civilizational problem, you know, that, that when you live in a, an unhealthy pathological society, the people who rise to the top often are the most pathological, right? Because they're leading in the direction that the society wants to go. So, you know, if, uh, I was talking to someone about this the other night, um, I won't, I won't say who he was, but he was out to dinner with Mel Gibson and some other superstars. And he's like, dude, they're the most insecure people you'll ever meet. Like, these are people who are, you know, they've got Oscars, they've got more money than they'll ever be able to spend. Actually, you were saying this earlier, talking about Mm -hmm. hanging out with um, some wealthy people and how even extremely wealthy people are hyper competitive, working their ass off all the time. It's never enough. That's a sickness. Whether it's money, power, fame, whatever it is, if you can't get enough of it, then you're talking about a compulsive behavior. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. And I don't know what the answer is how to fix it, honestly. You know, sometimes you feel powerless and hopeless. But, you know, my father, you know, he was someone who always he always had hope. He always believed in the better of humanity, you know, and and how, you know, the the forces of good would eventually overcome um, especially through the power of mass mobilization, mm. through the power of democracy, of exercising your most basic fundamental rights. But you know, it's 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 reached a point. It's such a strange point in history for I, for my country. You know, back in Iran, that I don't even know what the answer is. You know, right now you have Trump pulling out of the nuclear deal, but the Europeans and the Chinese are still, and the Russians are still going to continue going on, and. um I don't know what's going to happen. I, the only thing I know for sure is that it's going to get much worse before it gets any better.
1: Do you think? Do you think Trump's angling for open warfare with Iran?
0: I mean, that's sort of the sentiment when you have Pompeo and Bolton, these types of people who are very hawkish and very pro-war in power, um, and are pushing for this. And you have the the Koreans, who are in a way figuring out and resolving their issues. Um, and Iran remains the, the, the sole sort of boogeyman um, of, of, of the West. And that's a very yeah. dangerous position to be in, you know, because they have all... Yeah. They, 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 the, the claim is always that Iran poses an
1: existential threat, you know, to to, to, to the West, yeah. and which is very absurd. Yeah, I- Iranian missiles are coming to New York. Yeah, it's true. It, it seems like it, it was, you know, as you said, the axis of evil... It seems that Korea is too tight with China to really mess with. And Trump is going to want a war to distract from all his incompetencies and corruption. Iran does sort of seem to be the leading candidate. Who knows, maybe he'll just attack Granada or Panama <laughs> the way Bush did. You know, it.
0: at this point, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised by anything else you yeah. know, that Trump does.
1: Just to distract. Have you ever seen a movie called Wag the Dog? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Robert De Niro. That's amazing. Yeah. I just saw it the other night for the first time, actually. Incredible movie. You were going to, earlier you, you said something about your birth. You were going to uh, tell a story of, of how you were born.
0: Oh Yeah, so, um, you know, my father, after he got his uh, master's degree in Ohio, he came back to Iran. and uh, Ohio? Yeah, Ohio.
1: Jesus, man. Yeah, you guys yeah. have been everywhere. Ohio <laughs> to
0: Oregon. Yeah, it's. Like I said, it's like global nomads. (laughs) And my father met my mom. um, This was the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war. My mom was from uh, Khuramshar, a a town right on the border of Iran-Iraq. And her whole uh, town had been bombarded. So she fled to Ahvaz, another southern city near the border. And my father was coincidentally teaching there at the time. Mm -hmm. And he met my mom. He knocked her up. And my mom... Because because they were running out of forces on the ground, my father had to volunteer basically, um, and he had to go to you know to, to help with the with the forces you know to defend. And my mom fled to a place called Boucher um, by the Persian Gulf, and all the way up to there, the the there were there were the, the the hospitals were full of bodies. So my mom couldn't give birth to me at a hospital, and she she was at this like small hut by the sea. And this witch doctor basically came um, to give birth to me because he was the only one around. There are like these, um, these old uh, witch doctors or they're, they're more like these sort of cult type leaders who, who sing through, through this music called Zazar in the south. They, they, they sort of connect with the spiritual world.
1: Like a sheikh?
0: Like of? a shaman actually. That's the a best shaman. word I can find. Yeah. Like a shaman. Huh. And, um, th- th- that woman came and gave birth to me, you know, in a, in a, small hut by the Persian Gulf. And my parents decided to s- try to work it out because of me uh-huh. eventually. And, um, that's why they stuck it through. And after my brother was born two years later, we decided to, to move to the States.
1: Wow. Does your mother speak English? Yeah, she does. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. And, um... Yeah, you know, I just, you know, it's just really tragic this this fate for my father after everything that he fought for, he stood for. You know, my last conversation was with him was Dad, how do you live a happy life? He's like, for me, it's all about, you know, just just by by service to others, by giving love to others. That that was what literally, I know it sounds very cliché, but that was like the last conversation I had with my father cuz you know that I, you know, battle with depression and I always you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do. with I'm like 37. I still
1: don't know what I want to do with my life. Welcome to my world, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. But I mean, you've got some focus now, at least. Oh, definitely.
0: Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of motivation to to, to create more art. There's fo- there's motivation to to somehow give back to the world and to the community um, by being active in human rights. Um, I definitely want to continue my father's legacy. I, I definitely want to start a foundation in his name and just give back. Um,
1: that's the least I can do to honor his name. Yeah, I saw the footage of your father hiking in the mountains with the dogs and all that. He, he looked like a, a really cool guy.
0: And you know what's really ironic? His whole life he was trying to help save the environment in Iran. And like the, the, the attacks that like they did on my father, one of the main things was that he single-handedly
1: caused the drought. And all of the country. That's a big accomplishment. I mean, it's just, it's so absurd, you know. It's like demonizing but, him, but giving him incredible power. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the coolest things that happened, enough about you, let's talk yeah. about me now. Yeah, I'm oh. sorry, I, 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 I went off there for a while. <laughs> no, man, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's why you're here. Actually, I wanted to, to ask you why you're here. How the hell did you hear about... I mean I don't think tangentially speaking is going to uh make the Iranian government tremble <laughs> but but I hope it leads to maybe Rogan will hear it and and have you on his show that that'll get track their attention.
0: That'll be actually, yeah, I'll tell you the story. I think um it's it's a it's an interesting story. Um the way that I, you know, I I'm really big into podcasts and audiobooks and since the since the early days and um I heard about you on I think probably Joe Rogan's show or mm-hmm. or Duncan's or one of these guys and you know i loved the shrimp parade i think that that combination mm. of joe's curiosity and his little inner child and his stupid comedic you know approach to the world that i love and then duncan's pseudo-spiritualism with this hint of sarcasm <laughs> yeah. and then you're like the skeptic stoic one you know and the uh, is in, that what i am yeah i think so <laughs> i don't know about, i mean there's like this really cool mix of you guys that yeah. just that covers a lot of interesting topics and I, um, uh, you, you actually, I remember that uh, you you did a, a, a talk, I think, about Rhythmia. That's when I, I went oh, to, right. um, I went to uh, Rhythmia in Costa Rica to do ayahuasca i became very familiar you know with with a lot of these things through your podcast and i just felt that i really related to a lot of things that you were talking about i became very good friends with gabor mate because of you which oh, is very cool you know he's right. like now a very close friend of mine and i'm very honored to you know to to be in his circle of friends and i even told jerry at Rhythm, i'm like i hope you pay chris a percentage man because you know he's the reason that i'm here hey jerry waiting for that check <laughs> still waiting buddy um Oh, I was going to tell so, you this. Oh, yeah, no, I was yeah. going to. I was telling you this. I, I wanted to try to start a podcast in Iran uh-huh. because I was like, "How cool would I be? Just do this type of brutally honest, uh, brutally honest, you know, uh, Christopher Ryan or Joe Rogan, Duncan style podcast, but in but in the the, the Persian language because yeah. we don't have anything like this." There's what I was talking about to you about earlier about this dichotomy of the the public in the personal life in in Iran, where you know we're raised um, from a young age. I'm sorry I keep using that Orwellian word. I know it's very cliché, but it's exactly like that because from a young age you're taught to lie at mm. school. You're taught your parents tell you don't ever tell them we drink alcohol in this house. Mm. Don't tell them we have we play cards. Don't tell them we watch foreign films. So from a very young age you're taught to lie. And to add on that lie, we have another custom in Iran called tarof, which is like being courteous, but it's like a courteous way of lying. It's like, oh, please have some more fruit. But you're actually saying, please don't have some more fucking fruit. <laughs> you know, I can't afford anymore, giving away any more. Yeah. You know, so, so a combination of this sort of way of lying, essentially, it, it, it really affects you and it turns you into this um, sort of bipolar person where in mm. public you're living in one certain way in a private you're, you know, invited to crazy orgy parties and living this really wild, you know, crazy lifestyle. And I think it's it's getting to a point because in the post-internet era, we've reached a point where all these barriers and boundaries are sort of falling, falling apart. Because so, people, can, you,
1: can you access the entire internet in Iran? Well,
0: I mean, they, they have – so, in Iran, almost everything is filtered, like Facebook and mm-hmm. um, a lot of social media sites are filtered, But Iranian kids are so smart that they find ways around like through proxies and VPNs, virtual private networks and all these other very, you know, it's like when you, the more you push a kid, the more they're going to do the opposite. I mean, that's inherently in our nature. And the more they try to suppress the people, the more they're going to find a way to get away, get around it and and have access to that information. Mm and so i was really thinking about you know i should start a podcast and i should talk about all my sexual escapades and all the fucking drug abuse and the ups and downs and my life story it would be very interesting and i sat down with a friend and we started talking and we recorded our first episode and it was really wild all the shit that we were talking about and then i played it for a couple of my friends i'm like yeah man what do you guys think they're like dude the second this comes out you're gonna get arrested and raped in prison (laughs) because like talking about these socially taboo issues is very publicly and very honestly is it's so far-fetched in our society Mm. and that seems so fucked up because we need this brutal honesty to help us sort of progress as a culture are there
1: comedians in iran
0: yeah but it's like very like Censored, yeah. very clean, right? Very, so they're not truth tellers. No, no, not at all, not yeah. at all. I mean, so that's that's a, you know, I was like, well, that's not going to work. Maybe once I live, you know, in the West again, I can start such a podcast. But the whole point would have been, it would have been so much cool to be in yeah. Iran and do such a program because yeah. we don't have anything like that. We don't have anywhere where people can just go and vent very honestly about not just politics but very personal sort of issues because people don't speak out uh, too much about you know their their personal issues and problems and depressions and angst and all that which can be very helpful for a lot of people who would relate
1: yeah one of the coolest things that happened around sex at dawn is i got an email from someone in iran saying that they had read the book and that they wanted to translate it into persian and it was a group of students i believe and i was like they were asking permission i was like dude i mean dude or woman i don't know who it was uh, of course, but don't get in trouble, you know, I, I don't know right. what kind of trouble they could get into, but man, I'd, I'd hate to hear people, <laughs> you know, arrested for illegally translating our book. Um, so we, we worked out a thing where they did the translation, sent me the PDFs and then I put them up on my website. Oh, amazing. So if anyone in Iran is listening to this, uh, you can go to sexadon.com and, uh, I think it's under, there's a sex tab and there's a Persian translation. Oh, that'd be demo. great. Yes, we need definitely more Download people reading there. sex in Iran. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, they're, they're way ahead of yeah. you probably over there already. They right probably, now. <laughs> I mean,
1: the practitioners are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, maybe there are people who aren't getting invited to the parties and they yeah. just want to read about it. Um, yeah. Hey, speaking of Iran, maybe, maybe why don't you say some, something in Persian, send a message. If anyone's listening to this in Iran, a little private message to them. Uh, سلام بچه uh, امیدوارم که همتون خوب باشید و حکی کهداریره اینو گوش
0: میکنه uh, بدونه که من دارم همه سیام هم میکنم همه کار میکنم که مامان هم بیارم, بیارم بیرون و خیلی دلم واقعا برای ایران تنگ خود چون دیگه نمیتونم برگردم ولی عاشق همتونم و امیدوارم که یه روزی دوبار برگردم اونجا بتونم برای همهتون اجرا بکنم beautifulنگ نه
1: it's beautiful written as well. It's, what, it's the, I think, the most beautiful language in writing. Yeah. Um, before we wrap this up, where can people find you, and how can they support what you're doing?
0: Um, they can just find me at KingRam, K-I-N-G-R-A-A-M, um, anywhere. So that's that handle on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, if they search that, and KingRam.com. If they want to send me an email, my email is up there. It's just info at kingrom.com. And thanks again for having me, Chris. This was this was a huge honor. You know, uh, like I said, I've been li- a big listener since episode one, and to meet you in person, you know, it's, it's it's really cool. Especially since you know to to realize that you're just human, like the rest of us. <laughs> All too human. And that's one of the best things when from Gabor, and one of my, the reason I really love Gabor Mate. Just to, to wrap this up, is whenever I talk to him and I ask him for advice, he. He, he always speaks of his vulnerabilities so comfortably mm. and mm. to me he's such a large, larger than life character but when he speaks about his vulnerabilities and all his shortcomings it makes me realize how human he is and that way I can relate better to the advice and what he's telling me and, yeah. and seeing you in your own essence as well as the same thing So
1: my, my miss, I'm, I'm yeah. wearing sweatpants <laughs> ladies and gentlemen I'm a 56 year old man in sweatpants thanks Rom. thanks for having me All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm sure you did. If you're here now, it means you listened to the whole damn thing, which means you must have enjoyed it, right? Or you're paralyzed. You fell, you're on the floor, you can't get up, can't turn off the damn machine. In which case, um, hope things work out well for you. But if you do get up and you survive and you want to support the podcast, the best ways to do it are at patreon.com where you can give a dollar or $5 or $20 or $50 or even more per month. Uh, it's very easy to do. Just go to Patreon.com and search for Chris Ryan or tangentially speaking, and you'll find it all there. Alternatively, there's a PayPal button on my webpage that chrisryan.com or tangentially Um, you can just drop some change in the jar. That's always easy and great. And, uh, uh, appreciated. And uh what else can you do? You can use the affiliate link that's on the same webpage that chrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. If it's on a phone, you're down at the bottom. If it's on the computer, you'll see it on the right. And just click on that sucker and um if you bookmark it and then use that bookmark when you go to Amazon, whatever you buy, a small percentage of that will go to the podcast. Now, I keep thinking I should read the names of people who sign on to Patreon as a way to encourage you to do that, but I kind of feel like it—it it would be boring for you to just you know listen to me reading names. I don't know, or reading the names of people who buy things on Amazon or the things they buy. But I don't know if it makes sense to take up your time. So I'm trying not to do these sort of hokey things that the marketers will tell you you're supposed to do. So if you appreciate the absence of marketing savvy. <laughs> maybe you can express it by supporting the podcast how's that for some backwards logic Uh, okay what else can I talk about here I'm looking at my list over on the wall guess that's it Uh, you know mom's got her t-shirts and stickers and decals and signed copies of Tangentially Reading and Sex at Dawn if you want them she has all those in the garage and she'll ship them out to you wherever you are Also, coming soon, uh, I just uh, had the tangentially reading book converted to ebook. And um, so if you're interested in getting that and you can read it on your phone or uh, Kindle or whatever device you have, I am going to have those soon. And I think what I'm going to do, I need to talk to some people about this at Misfit because we did the book together. But what I'd like to do is just put it up on my webpage and you can download it and, you know, five bucks or whatever. And just don't, please don't just upload it and give it away. That's basically it. I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's necessary to put special controls and anti this and anti that and all that technology. I feel like we're a community of trust here and, um, Yeah. I, I kind of feel like I just want to be able to say, Hey, you know, put put five bucks in the in the jar and take a book and I don't need to like watch and make sure everybody's doing it. That's what I want to do. So if the folks at Misfitter down with it, that's what we're gonna do. Um in any case it'll be up on Amazon soon and, and elsewhere within a within a couple of weeks, I would say. All right. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everybody. You're beautiful. I really appreciate you. Here's to you, Justin and Bennett.
3: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day.